This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show we like to call the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. Because all the cool names for podcasts were taken, like my friend Jason there, Messy Spirituality. That would have been nice, but nope, couldn't use it. It's just the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. And I like this music here. Kind of sets the tone for what we're going to talk about both in this episode and in the coming episode which is a two-part conversation with my now good friend, Dr. Richard Boothby. Rick is an author. He's also a professor. He teaches at Loyola University of Maryland, and he's got an interest in psychoanalysis and philosophical psychology with a growing interest over the years in love and religion, spirituality. Yes, dare I even say Christianity. And if you think it's interesting that someone who's into Freud and Lacan and psychoanalysis is deeply interested in Jesus, well, (laughs) I do too. And by the way, there are others. I mean, people like my friend Tim Suttle and Pete Rollins, also Todd McGowan. These are all really important thinkers who um, approach the topic of Jesus with psychoanalysis that I have found to be super helpful, if not very interesting. So Rick and I share some other common denominators as well. Unfortunately, he lost his son years ago, something he writes about in his book entitled Blown Away, Refinding Life After My Son's Suicide. And I came across that book a year or so ago, which then led me to find him online and eventually to his next book, which is his most recent, and that's entitled Embracing the Void. Let's see, what can I say about Rick? And these two episodes, I mean, they mean a lot to me. Both the things we're talking about, the concept of love and its inherent incompleteness, if I can say it that way, which I guess I just did. Yeah, so that whole idea has been life-changing for me. So that means a lot. But not only that, the friendship that I've been able to strike up with Rick, that means even more. I don't know, man. Life is wild, isn't it? I would not have imagined meeting and interacting with guys like Rick a few years ago, but I'm so grateful for the journey that I've been on. And hey, I don't know what journey you've been on, but in case no one has told you lately, uh, you can do it. You're capable of carrying it all with you. As I have thought many, many times, the point isn't to specifically make your pain, whatever that pain has been, smaller. The point is, I think, to make the insides of who you are bigger so that you can carry it all. A bigger inside, a bigger interiority is capable of carrying more stuff. And I just think it all belongs. Everything in your journey belongs, man. Everything. I don't mean that the act of being traumatized or abused is something for which you should specifically be trying to carry. No, you can let that act go at some point. But the scar, yeah, that's always going to be with you and with me. And what I think that I think is that as we grow our hearts and our interiority, that thing, that scar, it might just become a beauty mark. I don't know, and I don't mean to force this upon you. I think it's all about consent. But the invitation, I think, is to allow that thing to be transformed into something beautiful. At any rate, Rick and I met up recently. We had a couple of conversations. And if you've experienced grief and are interested in the intellectual, spiritual trip that grief has taken you on, I think you'll like this discussion. 
And, and maybe even if you haven't been taken on a trip, you'll like this discussion. I hope so, at least. And I hope you'll check into Rick's work, find out more about him as you continue on the journey. Meanwhile, Indigo, The Color of Grief is out on all platforms. That happened on December 5. By the way, Rick gave me an amazing endorsement for the book, so I really appreciate that. But I hope you can check the book out. And if you like it, make sure to leave a review on Amazon or whatever platform you bought it on. I don't know why these reviews mean so much, but apparently they do. And it's a really easy way to kind of support your favorite author. Oh, wait, am I your favorite author? That's nice of you to say. Thank you. (laughs) All right. If you like this conversation with Dr. Richard Boothby, make sure you share it with a friend. Oh, and I guess I should say that there's a section in the middle where Rick asks me a little bit about myself. This first episode was the first time he and I had gotten to talk. So he's asking me some about my backstory. I wound up cutting a portion of that out. So when you get to about 39 minutes, that's um, where I cut out and in, and that's a part where we're, we begin to talk about Simone Vey. I don't know. I just felt like some of you who have listened to the podcast or who already know me already knew some of that story. And so when I get to talking about open and relational theology and mimetic theory, and then somehow we got into Simone Vey, I took a part out. I don't know. Some of you are like, oh, well, if I knew that was possible, you, there's a whole bunch of stuff you should be taking out. I should have not even told you, right? Anyhow, here we go. Thanks, everyone. Peace. Uh, but we should maybe start with your book because I um, uh, was really genuinely uh, blown away <laughs> to, 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 coin a, to, to coin a phrase. Um, it's it's a magnificent piece. I was really both um, inspired and impressed and humbled and and just enchanted by it. It was a very very moving and very original piece. I I don't know. Somebody said they compared it to uh, C.S. Lewis, and uh, I thought it's kind of C.S. Lewis uh, meets E.E. E. Cummings or something like that. Um, but with such soul and um, and such um, thoughtfulness about the larger religious questions, which of course really interest me, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sorry uh, for your loss of your daughter, and um, and 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 a finer tribute to her uh, couldn't be had than the book you wrote. So it's a, a lovely, lovely thing. Well, thank you. That means a lot. And uh, I really, really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to respond to that other than saying thank you. And you know, uh, as well as anyone, not that any other one person can entirely know exactly what's going on, but you know, as well as anyone, the the writing process and um, the... I don't think I put myself under pressure, but you know, you want to write in a way that honors your kid also and honors that relationship. And it took me, it took me a while, but I feel like I kind of finally started to get a little bit of, you know, what she would have loved and enjoyed as well as me. So, so that's kind of, that's kind of fun. There's something happening there. That's. Um, Can you tell me, um, I first, rehearse i i maybe got it at some point but it, it doesn't it didn't stick exactly when she died um how long ago it was and 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 what what got you started on the what now is 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 indigo yeah so she died new year's day you know, what motivated you in the, you know? oh yeah yeah i want to ask you the same thing uh new year's day 2015 so that's new year's day started. 2015 okay so eight years ago coming up yeah Wow. And um, exactly half of the time um, since my son's death, that was 2006. Right. Right. And did it, it seems like I've heard you say, did it take you a while? Or you were writing kind of right away, but you really didn't compile it all for a few years, something like that. I started trying to write about it in the first year. Mm -hmm. 
um i even even the first month after his death i was i was i was i was writing out of a kind of desperation and despair yeah. um and 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 i couldn't it it, yeah. it, it was uh, i just couldn't get anything down it was uh, totally dysfunctional um then a year later i tried i was away out of the country um and had some time and also tried but it didn't work mm. and uh but i desperately needed it and i knew mm. it um so it was about two, i guess it was a year and a half anyway two years actually and i had a summer and i um I think I mentioned this in the book. Yeah, I, in, I think in, in obvious sympathy and, and kind of attempt at contact and sharing with my son, who was a, a smoker, and I had been a smoker earlier in my life. I went back to smoking immediately. Interesting. And then that summer, I went nuts. <laughs> I just smoked uh, constantly for about 10 weeks, sitting on the front porch of my little uh townhouse in Baltimore and, and wrote the first draft. But it wasn't, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't a book for somebody else. I was just writing yeah. to survive. Um, yeah. It's very, very different than what ended up getting published. Very different. Would have been, I think, intolerable for <laughs> ordinary, you know, people. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, me too. The the writing piece of it Um became very, very important. And as with all my writing, um, I, I really got serious about writing right before she died and then certainly right after. And so all the stuff I've done has basically been what I call discovery writing. I didn't really set out to do any of it because suddenly, although my theology had started to shift in me, I was reading Peter Rollins um, kind of right before that. So it was starting to shift and, and some other folks too. But then that was, of course, like just high octane fuel to the whole. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna rethink a lot of this. So it was, it's all been discovery, and yeah, I totally agree. Sometimes, yeah, just the, that daily process of getting up and getting alone and writing out words on a page and moving them around feels like something's happening within me, like stuff's moving around inside of me. And uh, so, yeah, you asked about motivation. Mostly, I think, yeah, it's really weird. It's so weird because eight years ago, I was in a different place than I am now. And I was still a pastor back then and was still trying to connect the dots between what my theology was, you know, and this new thing that was emerging. Whereas now I'm not under any compulsion to do that. It's like, oh, this is just a whole new thing and it's it's okay. So I was really trying to to discover certainly who I was, what I thought about my daughter and those kinds of things over the years. But um, initially it was really to try to figure out, well, why did I think Jesus had to die? You know, what do I think about this loaded uh, bag baggage of a word, you know, atonement and those kinds of things. And so it's been a long, interesting journey, but I'm really grateful for, where I'm emerging and have over the last few years, which is a much, much more sense of freedom and, and grace, ironically, than, than I ever had previously. So I think a, there was probably a lot of reasons why I was doing that. What's it been like for you? I mean, I think we really shared this, but I, I'm not sure how I would answer this question exactly. But one question I have for you is, um what was it like for you um did did you feel in a certain sense um enabled even gifted by her death in spite of being torn to pieces by it yeah yeah i'm not sure what the right word is but something like that is going on and maybe it's wrapped up in the um in certainly the thing that emerged for both of us uh in different ways but um, maybe it's wrapped up in that whole absence is a presence kind of a thing. So you, mm -hmm. so this thing is ripped away, but then there's something else there that's not there, but that starts to form you. And so that thing, originally I felt it as a cloak, like it felt something as just 
constantly wrapped around me Mm -hmm. and I would carry it everywhere with me. Mm -hmm. And then the cloak kind of just, it kind of um, evaporated or, or vaporized or not vaporized. It, it it turned into something else. A cloak uh, among other things that separated you from other people or. No, that's a good way of putting it too. Yeah. It was a cloak of grief. It was a cloak of absence and it was the thing that was connected still to my daughter. It was the last thing I had left of my daughter, right? That mm. that grief piece. And it just constantly felt draped on me. But you're right. It also separated me from others too. Mm. And I had others tell me to take the cloak off. Um, and I think that's especially true in kind of normal typical american christianity kind of thing i mean you can grieve for a while but after a while you're supposed to you know be an overcomer and victorious and what whatever you know someone's nomenclature is and so you got to take it off and and i'd folks in my church and I, I don't necessarily blame them i i know it's hard it's hard to watch anyone go through it especially when it's your pastor and and you're you're used to that guy bringing you resolution and answers yeah. i was i was not interested i mean I'm fine with answers, but I wasn't interested in rushing into anything, you know. So, so to answer your question, sorry, I'm rambling a bit. Um, yeah, I think that's a way of putting it. It was a, it was a, it's been a gift. It's like a broken, wounded gift. Mm. Odd thing. So, so you asked the question. You said you didn't know how you would answer it, but you want to take a stab at it. I was, it was one of the things I was most um, surprised and taken off guard by. Um, first of all, the vividness of that presence and absence. Mm-hmm. That was shocking to me, I have to say. I didn't have the feeling. I had a few of those flashes in the first weeks after his death that people describe so frequently of you suddenly, you know, see something, you know, someone in the street and you go, oh, my God, it's Oliver. Um, mm-hmm. For a split second, you you feel you saw him. Um, but, of course, it's immediately dissipated. It's shattered by, by, by a, a real look. And you say, oh, no, of course, that's not him. Right. But. So there were those things, but the the big thing was something different. It was um, it was really feeling him present, and suddenly feeling the whole register of memories and feelings, and um, my whole relationship with him it felt like the blood coming back into a, a bloodless corpse. You know, it really was coming back to life. I mean, it was a. Um, and at first it was hard. At the same time, I was overjoyed. Um, it was very strange to, and complicated. And uh, But it was, I increasingly felt like it was a, a terrific uh, gift, which mm-hmm. I just had to be thankful for. Um, mm-hmm. Part of it was obvious. I and mean, part of it was that he had died... Um, a little bit unlike. I keep wanting to say Amy, but I think I'm getting it wrong. Your your daughter's name, Quincy. Quincy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Do you do you say it in the book? Her name? Maybe I'm once. Once really. Oh, it makes yeah. me feel a little better. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in lowercase. You might have missed it. <laughs> um. Well, it's a lovely name. I do actually. Now that you say it, I do remember it. But you're right. It's not frequently <laughs> mentioned. Um. Anyway, when when uh when he died, I I fairly quickly felt this 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 strange this paradox between being utterly bereft and emptied out and and just devastated, just left. I comment on this at one point. I just say, I, I felt like I was, the, I was dead. That right. I was the ghost. I was the absolute, you know, will of a wisp, you know, a shadow. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and he seemed real. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was fake and he was real. I was gone and he was there. Uh, but I more and more really um that was a lot of what what energized the writing was just um the feeling that I that that not exactly that he was speaking but that I I had to sort of speak about him because there he was and my whole relationship with him was returning in a, some new form or new um chapter now i would say um and i'll tell you the truth i've never thought about this until this very moment but i think that um i don't think that's over um it's been 16 years uh 17 actually um but i have the sense that um i mean definitely my experience with this is Mourning is a long arc. If you're willing, if you're able to do it, if you're able to stand it, it unfold. It doesn't stop. Uh, it never goes away. I don't. I don't think he's right. ever going away. For which, actually, I'm grateful um, right. to some extent. But it's also a. It has its heavy side, you know, as in almost in heavy in the sense of responsibility too. I mean, I feel. Hmm. And I, I feel like we're not done. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. done um, learning from him. I'm not done coming to know him. I'm not done having some kind of influence of his on my life, my heart, my feelings about things, my thoughts. And, um, anyway. Tell me more about that responsibility when you said that word. What do you think that means? I I guess I feel this may be a difference between us. I wanted to ask you about this, about how you you say a little bit that verges on, I mean, questions of your own responsibility, your own possible culpability, and was there a kind of negligence on your part and all that that led to Quincy's death and all that. In my case, I, I, I suffered from that terribly. Um, mm -hmm. Partly because just before his death, by suicide, I, he, we had had a terrible falling out. Um, I had called a, called a, a, um, you know this from having read the memoir. Right. But I had called the, the both the police and a lawyer, and also dreadfully his drug treatment center, uh, where he had been and had, had disassociated himself from it. But he tried to get back in, and they said, no, your dad called here and told us about mm. the guns that you're dealing with, and you're not welcome back. At which point, I thought I was, I had to call them, because, you know, he was making noises about, about being dangerous with these guns, and I, I was right. totally freaked out for, um, at the thought that I might not just lose my son, I may lose other people in the bargain, yeah. and... Um, that was a crazy moment, but um, uh, the very th memory, memory of it, memory of it, kind of derails my train of thought. Um, Understandable. Anyway, I think I was much. I I suspect I was much more caught up in that guilt trip, probably dynamic than you were. Um, but that was certainly a big part of my struggle, and the need to write was. A lot, a lot about trying to kind of gain some sense of a understanding and b maybe some kind of feeling of peace from that terrible dead weight of, of guilt. Um, what what could I have done and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I cannot imagine that for those for you and maybe those even listening who have had you know, dealing with the suicide is a, just a complicated thing on top of it. And then you're, you, you know, you've just nuanced it even more trying to be a responsible parent and person. Mm. But it puts you, obviously, you know, this, it just puts you in a no win situation, no matter how that goes. So, yeah. And it strikes me too, your situation, like what I got from reading among many other things from, from reading uh, blown away was, yeah, your relationship with Oliver 
I mean, had it was just necessary because he was had made some choices and had some own mental health things. And so your relationship was so strained that yes, by your writing, there seems to be a, a recreation and a you know, remember a remembering, like you're remembering that that a relationship together. And that was that was a really beautiful thing. And I can see why, yeah, you would want to continue to among other reasons, continue to write and continue to remember that thing. And that was really yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. Writing was, was for me, and I take it this may be true for you and your book. Um, it was time with him. I was yeah. just, right. sometimes it was terribly painful. Right. <laughs> um, but it was really time of enormous intimacy with him. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think about my ex-wife, who I still am in touch with, and we we have mm-hmm. still a very um, cordial is too cold a word. We we're we've got separate paths in life now, but but we're still you know quite close, and um, yeah. thank goodness. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> um, I think she's experienced this in a quite different way. Mm. But both of us have felt this in, in some sense, there's no margin of separation at all. Um, that Oliver is, is absolutely central part of both of our lives, even, um, 17 years after his death. And I don't, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't think that's something bad. Um, I think a lot of people, have gently tried to say to me, don't you think you ought to let go? You know, <laughs> you ought to graduate from this, you know, uh, yeah. get over it kind of thing. Um, not a lot, but some have. And, and yeah. tr- with my welfare in mind, you know, but um, sure. I, I find, I don't think it's diminished me. I think it's actually expanded me. It's actually yeah. enriched my life. And I don't think I'm moping about it either. I don't think it's kind of like, um, it's not feeling sorry for myself. It's not um, doting on the past. It's actually, um, this is, I guess, what this comment a minute ago about, I feel Oliver in my future, though I don't know what form it'll take. I almost feel like it's kind of, it kind of a, I feel a deep gratitude. Mm-hmm. If anything, it almost borders on guilt. I mentioned this really briefly in the memoir at the very end. I feel like, I've taken so much from him in his death, after mm. his death, that I I almost feel guilty about it. Like mm. he suffered the death and was deprived of the rest of his life, and I've gained from it, which I find there's something in that that's this. You know, I can have moments where I'm I'm really almost horrified by it, um, and yet it's true. That's really, really interesting. Well, it goes with things you say a lot, um, particularly in the second half of Indigo, but where you talk about the gift of the of what the departed impart to us and also the way in which um, loss is not what it initially appears to be in many instances and 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 love doesn't love doesn't die um yeah it it unfolds i guess if you're open to it um, right right I there's think that, I, yeah there's that line in that uh i always think of the interstellar movie christopher nolan and the the scientist is saying it's it's a very simple saying and in a one sense it feels cliched but in another sense I think it's, I think it might be the depth of everything, but she says, yeah, that love is the only thing that transcends uh, time and space. Yeah. And I think, I think that might be true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your, um, I mean, it's like, just before we got on, I was revisiting some of your, of your, of the things that I had highlighted and blown away. And um, I was, reminded again i'd kind of forgot some of the theological statements that you actually make are i mean i I just think they're beautiful and it's funny how we're coming from different spaces 
but there's so much overlap there. So what do you think was, what has evolved for you in terms of how you process the divine and think of the possibility of God and who God might be? And I don't care how, how you, you can answer however you want, but this makes me curious. Cause I, cause I had to wrestle with that, right? Cause that was my life. That was my job. And you didn't have to necessarily so much, but, but you did. Um, I, there's a lot to say about that. In fact, I, I feel like there's a, a, enough to say, so maybe too much to say. <laughs> um, maybe it'd be helpful, though, for me, partly to fill in a few blanks and frame things up a little bit so I can maybe make comments that are a little more useful. But also, I'm I'm really curious about, so maybe if it's okay, maybe we could take a tiny detour through sure. your your past, because I, of course, one of the things that I really was slammed by in your own recounting of Quincy's death in the aftermath and, and its effect on you and then the writing and stuff is that you ended up finding yourself in a, a theological internal revolution that got you uh, basically dismissed from your post in your church. Yeah. And I wonder, um, Again, this isn't, I'm not being evasive. I'd love to talk about yeah, sure. with Oliver and my own thought about that, but maybe we can come back with it with to it yep. through a little detour because I'm I'm really curious to know. I don't even know what denomination or what church it was you were involved in and and what was the what was the issue for the church and how did you navigate that? Yeah, Pops, very come back to your question. <laughs> yeah. Um I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll try to be economical with my words because there's a lot to it. So uh, my background is Church of the Nazarene. It's um, sometimes referred to as like a holiness denomination. Um, and both granddads on both sides were Nazarene pastors. My dad was a Nazarene pastor. Oh, lots really? Of, wow. Yeah, lots of in-laws and cousins. I mean, we very much um, indoctrinated into the whole thing. And for the most part, it was it was positive. It was a positive way to grow up. Had a really good dad. He was very legalistic, but but um, there was a lot of love there, and it was very good. I always tended to be more on the progressive side of things. I was a church planter, and so that helped because I didn't have to like like I, you know, in that movement and in a lot of kind of Americanized Christian movements, when you plant churches, you're kind of like the R and D for the denominations, and they don't really care what you do um, as long as you well. If you start to grow and you're effective, then they'll they'll start to ask things of you. But so I got to kind of be on the edge and experiment a little bit, and that was good for me. I wouldn't have lasted in a really traditional setting. So as I mentioned previously, I was um, I was reading Peter Rollins and some Father Richard Rohr and oh maybe Anne Lamont, Barbara Brown Taylor, these kind of people who were more progressive, and it was it was definitely inviting me to reassemble or, you know, to, to rethink my faith. And then also I was running into people who were very different from me. I mean, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is LGBTQ plus folks as a mm -hmm. pastor. Um, of course you run into all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And I just kept getting struck with how beautiful some of these people were, how some of them did not ask for this, which of course that was one of the storylines of that's the narrative of most American Christianity is it's, it's this, Thing that they're choosing and making bad moral decisions and that's just so gross and, and and it's so illogical once you meet a few people who are really struggling like most of them i'm not suggesting it's true with everyone but many of them would gladly trade some of the mm -hmm. things that they had carried to uh, to fit within the quote-unquote normalized thing so mm -hmm. that was really doing a number on me anyhow fast forwarding after quincy died my initial thought, basically the thought in my head for the first, well, first couple of months was what the hell just happened. Um, and then I was like, well, why did she have to die? Not in a, I wasn't mad at God per se. Um, although I think some people thought I was, it wasn't that as much as I was just really trying to like, what, what is the point? What does this mean? Why would, why would this have to happen? Mm. For me, all those questions were, in some way, directly or indirectly, connected to why did Jesus have to die? Yes, and I, I just 
I just kept every time I would start to go down, it was like um like water that reaches the lowest level. Like I'd be experimenting with this thought up here about Quincy and it would just seep down into this, you know, culvert. And that culvert kept being, well, why did Jesus have to die? So of course the answer that I'd that had been given to me and that I had basically parroted most of my life was that, well, Jesus had to die because God, you know, God couldn't offer forgiveness without that, which is an absurd thought when you stop and think about it. If God is love, now, if God is something else, then it makes sense. But if God is love, it doesn't make any sense that he would need someone to die in order to forgive. So that was not making sense. And then that's when, by the grace of God, um, I, I found Rene Girard. And Girard gave me an intelligent way to recognize why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die because we killed him. And this is what we do. We've ordered, you know, our culture and our systems for ages now around sacrifice. And there's a bunch of other things that, you know, Gerard helps me nuance. And but that, like, I, I remember that was about the end of 2015. I was like, oh, this is this could get me in a lot of trouble. But I think that this is probably true. He, I don't think Jesus really had to die in order for God to love us. I think rather it's a more beautiful way to read it to say Jesus died because he was subverting the scapegoating mechanism. You know, he volitionally chose to step into this absurd thing and violent thing that we've created. And that really changed me. And so the then the last part of the little story is, you know, I started preaching that and I started writing about that. And it, it definitely was... Um, pushing against the my denomination, which, by the way, is full of, full of a lot of good people. Um, but the system itself is, like a lot of systems, is built around sacrifice. And then I said, the final straw really was when I said, well, who are we scapegoating now? Of course, there's no shortage there, a lot of people, but it was the, it was the LGBTQ crowd that most we most uh, primarily scapegoated. Mm -hmm. We reserved all our wrath and all of our condemnation. I mean, for lots of things, but for sure, anyone that deviates from our from our sexual norms, which is all BS anyhow, because it's all the normalized people. It's all the normal people who get to determine who you know who's normal. So mm -hmm. when when my posture started to change in that way publicly, that's when I really started to feel the wrath of the system privately. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised to know that there's a lot of pastors who struggle with that, even who are still a part of that kind of evangelical system. They really struggle with it. It's okay. Struggling with, with their own sexual identity. Sorry, could be that, or could be struggling with... The issue. Yeah, the issue. Like, I know what my, I know what my system is telling me I have to preach, but here's what's happening in the real world when I meet with people. Mm -hmm. You know, here's what, you know, it's it's... It's not a black and white issue any more than anything else is. It's a, it's it's a gray area. It's a, what I'm trying to say is at least in the system I came from, privately, uh, and even in small groups of pastors, it's totally understandable to bring that up and to be honest about that. But if you start to speak it on a Sunday morning, that then gets broadcast to other churches. You you'll yeah you'll you'll feel the system pretty quick, and that's what happened. And so they. They started telling me I needed to change my mind, and I was like, "Well, that's absurd." And and um, it pretty mm -hmm. quickly escalated, and so finally, they they officially deemed me out of alignment with their theology, and that would have been in twenty was it eighteen or nineteen? And it was the most, it was the hardest vocational thing and the best vocational thing of my entire life, and it's a it was a watershed moment. Yeah, I'll bet. Lost, lost a lot of friends, a lot, most of our friends, and even family members who, you know, basically turned their back. But, but also, it was just a, wow. such the right thing to do. I was just like, I felt really almost similar to this with as we talk about our kids passing away and writing about it. Like, I felt kind of like honored to um, to experience this thing on behalf of human beings who have been, you know, marginalized, like it was a really beautiful thing. So 
anyhow, that's probably about as quick as I can make the story. And that, that fills in maybe some gaps for you. And then there's one on factory work. It's, it's a fantastic volume. But but this one, for me, is the gem. Um, it's the most challenging, but also the most rewarding. Um, affliction and the love of God, where affliction is precisely uh, <clears throat> the 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 experience of a parent in mourning can't be for their own child can't be a more appropriate example of what she means by affliction affliction mm -hmm. means you're you're just have everything you love and care about everything you even need to survive is torn away from you emotionally survive is torn away and um and you feel God, if there, if you can tolerate the idea of God anymore at all, it's as if God has withdrawn to an infinite distance. Um, and her point is that this, what many people might be tempted to say, is the utter failure of the religious experience, that you're being denied and cut off from the divine um she says no it's precisely the opposite it's only when you feel this withdrawal of the divine leaving you bereft and oh my god why have you forsaken me exactly exactly yeah. exactly it's precisely the moment on the cross when jesus himself feels this affliction um that's the moment when the divine can actually, and Augustine knew this, I mean, that, 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 that that's when the infinite becomes, enters you more intimately than, than you have yourself. I mean, it's, it's closer to your, closer to your, God is closer to you than you are to yourself. Um, that's, I would have to say, <laughs> not exaggerating, that's been my experience of, um, the death of my son. Mm -hmm. um, and were you feeling any of that? Well, you read Simone Weil years ago, and mm -hmm. you have thought through some of these things, but um, was his death a catalyst to, I mean, obviously it was it to some degree, um, into this even more, I guess, yeah. Totally, and it was totally direct. I mean, what, the thing that shocked and, and, and both, it shocked and puzzled me, but it also kind of... Um, <laughs> blew me away to see. Mm -hmm. I mean that in the in his absence which was so excruciating um I had already in the in the month or so before his death as I said a minute ago you know earlier in the in our talk we had had this terrible falling out he was so angry at me and this anger had built up but we had been so close I think fair to say closer than most fathers are to a child. And this was my only child. Mm -hmm. And um, we had just shared so much. And uh, that intensity of the relation made his suicide and his mm -hmm. death so much more challenging. Um, yeah. But what amazed me was precisely in his absence, he was intimately close to me. Mm. I have never felt he returned to me. Yeah. Now, of course, some of this was was has a much more banal explanation. It's not banal even at that, but it's a much more ready to hand explanation, which is, you know, all the all the heartbreak and tension and and, and just pain of living with an addict. Yeah, is taken away, and suddenly you have access to the boy you loved. Yeah, un, you know, unsoiled and unwounded by the whole mess of the drug addiction and all the rest of it. That's true, of course. But I very quickly realized, no, that's not all. This is it's um, it's an intimacy that I I'd never had with him. And um, as if, yeah, 
I mean, I I don't know what to make of this theologically. I I, I haven't worked that out yet. <laughs> Still a big jo- question mark sitting on the on the end of my bed every night. When I <laughs> but um, it definitely opened me to this idea that that you're onto. I think that it is in loss and absence. It is in love's longing for what it doesn't perfectly possess. And maybe that of and for which it is absolutely bereft in mourning and missing, that is the space in which we relate to the divine, whatever the divine is. That's what seems to me to have been kind of delivered to me. And I feel actually incredibly grateful um, that it was delivered. I, I, Again, I don't know what to make of it theologically. I just, I think you were aware of this, and you may have already read it, you may have already told me this, but um, I ended up, while working on the memoir for whatever it was, 15 years or so, I conceived a new book, um, my favorite of the books I've written, I think by far the best, uh, called Embracing the Void. Right. Um rethinking the origin of the sacred and in that book i i draw on on the french analyst jacques lacan to 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 make sense out of this idea that in what withdraws from us what is lost to us of what of those we loved it is in the heart of that absence that the true presence paradoxically, infinitely paradoxically, makes itself available to us. And to explain exactly kind of how that is experienced and what it means, that's, of course, a whole other challenge. But the basic outline, the basic kind of contours of what happened in my mind, which was totally unexpected, I have to say. Um, I've always had a little bit of a spiritual sensibility and that sometimes in my life in and out of something like real religiosity but um you know when oliver died um i was in i was 51 i think and um um i i wasn't in a very very religious period but but his death has definitely revolutionized my sense of what in a profound sense the religious is about mm-hmm. uh, what the human relation to divinity or to transcendence, whatever you're going to call it, what that is. Um, Love. Yeah, love, exactly. That love, love is at some extremely profound level not separable from absence. And and this paradox is just absolutely at the heart of, um, of us. It's the heart of us, and suddenly I, I, I actually now would defend the idea that I, I don't, I don't think Freud, Freud in his, as you know, I'm sure he, he, he's basically very hard on religion, and and his his critique is very powerful and not totally nonsense, but I get the feeling that Freud was was resistant to this particular insight. And it's the insight of the great mystics, um, um, maybe Eckhart more than any of them, but the great mystics are all about this, it seems to me, as are the the great spiritual um, thinkers of many of the Asian traditions, um, mm-hmm. definitely Zen, Buddhism, and, 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 and Hinduism, and we can trace this in, in many religions around the world and through history. But, but that was, the for me, the great gift, yeah. um, was this revolution that was as much philosophical as it's been emotional. Yeah, and maybe theological, because... And theological, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Yeah. The only reason why I, for me, I, I, I still have a little, um, you know, I balk a little bit at, at, at the word theological only because the, the, the theos, the, the God part is 
now I feel like it's a word I have a hard time using without fearing that I'll be immediately misunderstood that, you yeah. know, the God that, that most people envision, which is the traditional God of Christian theology anyway, is the, is the absolutely present being, the, right. the absolute being that has no lack. That no has, lack, no gap. Yes, it's absolute plentitude. And, and I want to say, no, it, actually, you have to be able to think absolute being at the heart of absolute absence. Um, that's, that's funny because I also funny. am reluctant to use the word God coming from, yeah, you know, you might be coming from slightly more philosophical circles and assuming that everyone thinks that you're talking about a God without lack. I'm coming from slightly more Christian circles. It's the same thing. Um, it's like the magic, you know, fix the silver bullet kind of God that completes you. Yeah. And um, yeah. I don't think that's it at all. And what really helps me, what was really revolutionary for me was not only thinking these things, but then continuing continuing to return to the Bible and realizing how often it plays out in the Bible that way. And certainly the life of Jesus seems to resonate more with this um, and this kind of idea of love than anything where absolutely and completed and everyone loves him and he's conquering and so isn't that wild so that was really really important for me now i read the i've read the bible less in the last year than i have my entire life put together if that sentence even makes sense but um but it's still really really important to me and it certainly was coming out of the tradition i did and i don't see anything in the bible that dissuades me from what you were talking about. And I, and I think, yeah, I think it might be the, um, might be the hope of, might be the hope of us all that the fabric of all of this is built around some kind of, I don't, I don't know what to call it sometimes, this, this hole, this gap, this self-giving woundedness, this mm -hmm. vulnerability that's willing to, to be in consent, to be in a consensual relationship with, not just humans, but with all things from the microscopic to the macroscopic. That's a very interesting divine thing yes. going on. That's right. That's right. That's right. And and a lot of what, um, as you know, I I I guess you've read the the, the book, but it it's I I embracing the void. Huh? Yes. Embracing the void. Well, yeah. I will tell you, I stopped reading that in part. I don't know if you can relate to this. Um, it's like, I, I have some background in music too. When I write a song, like the craziest thing that's happened to me so many times over the years, I'll write a tune and I'll play it for my, my, my wife and she'll be like, oh yeah, that sounds like so-and-so. And then I'm like, oh crap, it does. It it's I just stole their melody, right? I literally stopped reading Embrace and Avoid because I did not want to miss, I didn't want to appropriate any of your stuff, but <laughs> like, you uh, know, this is what Freud says in print. He says this is this is why he stopped reading Nietzsche because he was being too heavily influenced. Interesting. <laughs> um, well, uh, so in this example, you're Nietzsche and I'm Freud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't well, know who got the worst end of the deal on that, but. Um, one of the things that surprised me about writing that book, it really did, was um, it was a book that, that, that yes, I think it really was inspired by Oliver's death. It was inspired really at a deep level by an experience of um, one of the things I, I, you know this from Blown Away, I, I had the enormous good fortune of the year immediately after Oliver's death of, of being part of this psilocybin study at Johns Hopkins. Right. right. And that was hugely helpful to me for just experiencing, not necessarily making philosophical sense of it, but experiencing this being open, I guess I would say to this ultimate paradox that the great presence shines forth out of the most profound absence and mm. the great fullness comes out of this emptiness 
um, mm. the silence, uh, that the word speaks out of the silence. Um, mm. That so hit me with the help of those drugs. Um, not to say that, that psilocybin or any other drug by itself simply does this to us, but in the right context, I mean, they're right to say, as they do, you know, that you need to be in the right setting mm-hmm. with the right guidance and the right openness and the right preparation to really make the most. You can't just drop drop acid or do mushrooms and go out to the latest, you know, dance hall and, and find God. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but it, um, it did open me to something I just had never conceived and it, it then, to my amazement, led um, to the Nazarene, <laughs> as your physician <laughs> would have said. Yeah, that that Jesus, the figure of Jesus, comes forward in that book, in in, in embracing the void, as um, as a as a profoundly fitting um, moment of this paradoxical truth of presence yeah. and absence or, or of death and life. Um, yeah. So I've ended up being a, um, it didn't, however, turn me into, a, I'll finish this and shut up. It didn't turn me into a Christian, however. And the reason that I lay out in the book is that I kind of celebrate Christianity in a way as being closest of all the world religions in a certain sense. It's the closest to this paradoxical truth. So I, that's another thing that makes me more sympathetic to Simone Weil. But, but I also balance it by saying Christianity is, of all the world religions, the most, if it gets credit, if it gets the high marks for being the closest to this paradoxical truth, it's also the most symptomatic religion. That is to say, it's the most, the religion that then loses its own discovery and dogma and yeah. self-certainty yeah. and um and basically a kind of a bigotry a kind of spiritualist bigotry that that diminishes and de- discounts other religions all too much um a religion that's in a sense you know just too full of itself um yeah and it becomes antithetical to the entire way of jesus Exactly. Exactly. Is, the, the the irony is that the, the great Judas yeah. is Christianity itself. Yeah. The great silencer of the the moment of the Jesus moment is unfortunately Christianity yeah. itself. Especially I'm here, make a lot of friends in the <laughs> right. Well, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, they can't hire, fire me the way they fired you. Uh, That's right. <laughs> professors That's of right. philosophy, we can say this stuff and get away with You're it. You're supposed to say this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. I'm looking at the time. I don't want to take advantage of your time, but I um, I just really fascinated by the common denominators and the things that are happening. Maybe we can do some work together in the future or something. Oh, I'd love to, Jonathan. Absolutely. By the way, do you go by anything other? Is it just Jonathan? People call you John or anything like that? People call me a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But Jonathan is the usual. Yeah, I won't repeat all of them, and Jonathan will be fine. (laughs) Yeah, no, I would love to uh, have some further talks. I, um, I, I, I kid a little bit in the, in, in, in devoting embracing the void um in 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 dedicating it to my wife who i think i i think i call her my my beloved what do i say stubborn but but beloved diehard atheist or something like that she's, <laughs> she's quite a sort of, sort of a hard science kind of person uh who finds religion pretty um pretty uh um suspicious operation but <laughs> well and i would only just add plenty you know, i don't know if your partner even cares about these kinds of things but some of the atheist friends that i've had i've come to the conclusion are closer to the spirit in the way of jesus than many of the christian friends i've had uh, yeah that was revolutionary for me too to come to that realization of oh this is why people 
they they've turned away from God because they've been given an idea of God that's really preposterous. And so in doing that, they're being true to love and how backwards and great and mixed up is all of that. So Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think that um it's wonderful to meet you and be aware of you in part because I think that um as Peter Rollins also thinks, who I also really respect and um I like you and Peter, I, I think that that contemporary Christianity I'm not sure it's, it's certainly not limited to the United States, but it, it, contemporary con- Christianity is really hungry, I think, for mm-hmm. something like this transformation. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm I would be happy if the rest of my uh, writer's life um, contributed to that. It's important. I, I agree. I think, like, I don't want to be too dramatic, but I think it might be the hope of the world. I mean, humanity has to evolve. And if humanity's religion doesn't evolve, we will not have a future. This is more than a viable way forward. I mean, this is this could be the hope that people lean into this kind of stuff, but they can yeah. step away from, as you said, certainty and having all the answers and and just being vulnerable to live in relationship with one another and relationship with the divine. Good grief, it could open us up. I totally agree with that. Um, I think that our, it may be our our best hope. Yeah. Um, I That's very much agree with that, Jonathan. Hey, as we close, um, what do you think Oliver would be doing if he was still around and in good health? Oh, man. You know, <laughs> I've thought about that, and and the mm. first thing that comes to me is very, it comes to me powerfully. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and when I first thought of that, I thought, oh, God, that's terrible. Um, it's a total blank. And I felt bad about that, both mm. about him. Maybe he was so far gone, I, I can't even imagine him doing anything worthwhile. Or about me, that I'd given up on it. And then I thought something else. I thought, the fact that it's a total blank that I don't know how to fill in that blank at all. He could be doing anything. I don't know. I thought, maybe I'm looking at it totally the wrong way. Maybe, actually, that is incredibly positive, that there's a total openness that he could have had he been able to shake heroin and stabilize his life. There wasn't a limit. Right. And, I, and he might have been doing anything. Uh, he was capable of it. He was incredibly gifted, actually. Um, mm. He was it's part of the reason I loved him so much. He was so intelligent, but really artistically gifted, really, and really humanly gifted. His grandson, by the way, um, who's now coming up on 21 years old next month, he, he, he has this. Some of these qualities of his father, just a beautiful soul, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> no prejudice as his grandfather. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Uh, anyway, uh, let's definitely uh, stay in touch, and, and I'd be delighted to, if it's useful, yeah. uh, I'd be delighted to talk more, you know, with you on or off, <laughs> on or off the air yeah. uh, about these issues, because I'm really, really concerned about them and uh, would both like to learn more and, uh, and and contribute what I can. So be very open to that. As Claude Rains said in a famous moment, uh, no, it's, it's Bogey who said it, of course. I think this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's a good way to conclude. <laughs> All right. Bye, Jonathan. Great yeah. talking to you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, thanks for hanging out with me and Rick today. Make sure you check out his work. Just Google Richard Boothby online. Uh, His latest book is called Embracing the Void. If you're someone who's interested in psychoanalytics, which 
I know I have some Girardian listeners who are interested in those kinds of things, Freudian, Lacanian, Hegelian kinds of philosophical thought and just desire and Christianity and love and spirituality. I think you should really be aware of Rick's work. All right. Blessings to everyone. Make sure you tune into part two of this conversation. It was actually a whole different day that we talked. So it wasn't so much part two of this particular conversation. It was another day, but lots of similar themes. That's coming up in the next episode. Peace, everyone. Have a great week.